Everyone up, everyone in. Time for the fun to begin. Come along with me, Lookout Bear, on a brand new adventure. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Michael B. Moynihan here, Zubilee Zoo's resident adventurer, Lookout Bear. I, along with my friends Paul. Hello, Zubaroos. And Billy. Welcome to the show. Have teamed up to bring you an informative and entertaining deep dive into the loving world of Zubilee Zoo, one episode at a time. So please, Buckle up and join us for When You're in Zubilee 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 Magic and wonder are waiting for you So come on with us now And discover the wonder of you Welcome to Zubilee Zoo That's right, you can listen to the brand new Zoobly Zoo podcast, dropping the 1st and the 15th of every month, wherever you get your podcasts, or at electronicmediacollective.com slash pod. Hi, it's Wesley Ure. I played Will Marshall on Land of the Lost, and I'm the killer on Toolbox Murders. And you're listening to Moose's Monster... <laughs> I'm gonna get this right. Moose's Monster... Mash! to another all-new episode of Moose's Monster Mash. I'm your host, Moose. And this is another one of those crossover episodes where it's not quite horror, it's not quite this, it's not quite that, it's a little everything. Today's guest has been in action, adventure, comedy, horror, Disney, you name it, he's probably been in it. A lot to cover, a lot we're not going to cover in this episode, so just tell you now, he's going to have to come back. Please welcome... From Planet of the Apes, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, A Dream Child, The Blob, and many, many other projects. Mr. Bobby Porter. Hey, Moose, what's up? Not much. How's it going? You know what? I'm, I'm honored to be a part of this. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, how's life? How's sunny California? It's, uh, <laughs> it's the middle of June and it was raining this morning. We are really dealing with some strange weather out here but you know what for those of us who are lifetime runners it's beautiful because it isn't 100 degrees yet so yeah <laughs> so it's definitely good running weather yeah, absolutely for us here in the midwest that's good uh that's that's yard work weather <laughs> <laughs> you know what those swirly round things that take roofs off they haven't shown up yet have they no okay good good for you yeah, no, we, we're, we're we don't get to make that one. trip to Oz just yet. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, I'll I'll digress a little. I was on a film set years ago, and a bunch of stunt guys were standing around, and some of the kids who were working on the film walked over to me because I'm four foot nine. They they politely asked me. They said, "Sir, what was it like to work on The Wizard of Oz?" <laughs> and the other stunt guys who were older than and me, older than me, and a bit more mature. Well, they claimed to be. Um, they were laughing their 
tails off because they realized that the film had been made in 1939. And I turned to the older stunt guy and I said, well, it was wonderful. And unlike this gentleman here, my film was actually in color and had a sound man. Huh. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you watch film, you don't put a date to it. You know, you can watch a film from 40 years ago and if it's good, you don't realize it was made 40 years ago. No, so unless you're like one of those people who sit down and just watch movies uh, nonstop, and then you kind of tell like, okay, this was definitely made in this era. And you outside know, of I, that, it's like, eh, it's a movie. And then you don't realize just how long ago it was made. Well, the thing that I've always tried to teach young filmmakers and people who are willing to listen is that it all starts with the story. If the story is good, it doesn't matter how it's made, it's how it's told that matters. And if you don't care about the characters, if you don't care about the plot line, if you don't, you know, all the great stories that have been told, that have been turned into films, have been turned into reasonably good and lasting films. If it's a terrible story from the beginning, you don't really care. Right. So, even great horror stories, you know, I mean... A really great horror story isn't just how many times can we scare the audience and make them pee in their pants. It's how many times do we really care about the character, and if that person does become the victim, do we really become emotionally entangled in that plotline? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so. yeah, there has to be some character development. There has to be something to entice you to want to watch it, not just, ooh, jump scare. Yeah, and if we're going to be contemporary about it, uh, the gentlemen and ladies who have recently gone on strike to protect their craft and their technical expertise are the storytellers. Mm -hmm. So let's support these people and help them get a working wage and um, an opportunity to become professional writers for more than just one or two projects. But Absolutely. Yeah. There's my commercial for the Writers Guild. <laughs> they they deserve it. Yeah, they do. You know, and anybody in any craft, in any profession, whether it be building airplanes or building movies, you know, you should respect the people who are actually the creative force behind it. Well, I mean, let's face it, without the writers, neither one of us have anything to do right now. We wouldn't be talking to each other. We wouldn't have met. So, yeah. So, so looking at IMDb, you started in 72. Well, technically, uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. everything came out in 72. So were Correct. you doing stuff before that, acting-wise, or just you woke up in 71 and said, I'm in? Um, I'll tell you a quick story. My, my inter in, well, the beginning of my career was started as I babysat for a neighbor who was the premier helicopter pilot in the film industry. And he was a um, phenomenal, phenomenal pilot, a war, um, Vietnam veteran, and uh, his name was Jim Gavin. He flew every helicopter scene you've ever seen from the 60s up until like the early 90s. And um, he would go off to these you know, studio um parties or premieres with his wife and his cute little Mercedes and he had a child, he had a small child and I'd go over and babysit while I would go over to his house with my um, book bag and my organic chemistry and my PCAM and I was a pre-med student at the University of California and uh, 
I would fall asleep reading his scripts because he had screenplays all over the house. So rather than doing my organic chemistry homework, I was reading the next big movie screenplay. And so after my first year of college, he asked me if I had a summer job. And I said, yes. And he said, uh, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm working at Disneyland. He says, yeah. He, I said, yeah. And she's, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a character. He says, oh, you're a character. That's great. You know, uh, which one? I said, well, I'd rather not tell you. And he goes, I'm not allowed? I said, no, I could tell you. Um, <laughs> then he says, okay, well, what are you going to be doing this summer? I said, well, I'll be Minnie Mouse. Minnie Mouse? Minnie Mouse. Not Mickey. Minnie Mouse. I said, yeah. He says, okay, that's cool. I'm not going to judge, but he said, um, would you rather go to Kansas and fly around in a biplane with the greatest ever lived and uh, do a really cool movie? And I went, I'm it. And so I went to 20th Century Fox and met the assistant director and had a conversation. And I, you know, baffled him enough to make him think that I actually knew what I was doing. And that was. So I, I spent all of the next three months in and around Hutchinson, Kansas, uh, sitting in the front seat of an old biplane being flown by uh, Frank Dahlman, the greatest pilot, or at least the greatest aerobatic pilot that ever lived. And um, one thing led to another, being four foot nine and willing to do stunt work and having some sort of, you know, acrobatic and athletic background, martial arts background. Uh, one thing led to another, and here we are. Chatting 53 years later. You're, you're flying around literally one of the smallest towns in Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought I'd be ahead of me. I went, oh my God, I'm actually working on a Hollywood movie in Hutchinson, Kansas. It doesn't get any better than this. So, yeah. To all those who live in Hutchinson, thank you very much for launching my career. Literally. Yeah. And Forgive me if, you know, you said this already, but what movie was it? Oh, I don't think I did. Um, it was a film called Ace, A-C-E, Ace Eli. And, and Roger, Roger of the Skies. Roger of the Skies. Yes, it was um, very obscure. It was, it was Fox's big film of that year. Uh, Cliff Robertson had just won an Academy Award. Um, it was uh, Bernadette Peters' first film. And it was a very, very good story. It was about a father and son who are forced to survive not having a mom around because she dies in the opening scene. And um, the father is a phenomenal pilot, but he's a terrible dad. He just doesn't have the skill sets. And so that's what the story was about, was how does this guy suddenly contend with being a single dad in 1920s middle America? Um, and the story was written by a very young man who wanted to direct the film, and Fox said, come back, kid, in about 20 years, because nobody under the age of 40 ever directs our movies. And so that young kid went and set up shop at Universal, and his, that kid's name was Steven Spielberg. Um, so the studio took control over the content of the film, and when the film was finally cut, you said, well, it has a terribly dramatic and tragic ending, and we don't want a sad movie. We want, you know, a, an upbeat movie. So they completely reshot the, the final scene to where Dad just has this epiphany and suddenly realizes, well, 
he's got a relative somewhere else who can help him raise the kid, and not everything's all well and good. It was very Disney-like finish the film. Well, it was never meant to be that kind of film. So the director and the producers um, all used aliases in the credits. And, of course, the cast couldn't use an alias because they didn't know who they were. Um, but the film literally disappeared. I mean, they just buried it. And if you take a look at it now, if you can find a copy of it anywhere, the cinematography alone is worth a watch. It was absolutely beautifully shot. Uh, David Walsh was the cinematographer back then. And the aerial photography is some of the best aerial photography you'll ever see. And it wasn't CGI. It's real airplanes and real clouds and real tornadoes in the background. And yeah, it was, it was quite an experience for a 19-year-old kid who was a pre-med student who suddenly realized, wait, there might be another pathway. I didn't really realize it at the time. It was just my first job. But the boy I doubled was the hot child actor of the day. His name was Eric Shea. And Eric was a great, great young man and a phenomenal actor. There's a scene in there where he suddenly realizes that he's that his mom's gone. And, you know, some local kids have talked him into having a beer, and he's just losing it. And it's one of the great performances on screen, whether it be a child or an adult. He did a great job. Um, so it's a shame that the film kind of died um, for various reasons. But uh, it launched my career because Eric continued to work, and I worked with him again shortly after that on the Poseidon Adventure, and then he went to Disney and was like the hot Disney child actor, and I did you know, four or five films with him there. Um, and then he got too big. <laughs> Once he got to be about five foot two, they hired somebody else and uh, moved on to the next, the next good gig, you know. Um, but I went back to college, and I was in a lab, and I saw a film crew out the window, and I said to my lab partner, Kate, hey, take, take good notes, I'll be right back. And he says, no, you won't. <laughs> so I went down, and I saw this film crew shooting a movie on the campus of the University of California, down in Irvine, in Newport Beach area. And uh, all the guys were guys I had just worked with on this movie in Kansas. The same film crew, the same prop guys, same drivers, the same grips. I went, this is just bizarre. You know, there's hundreds of film crews, and here are all these guys I just spent the summer with. And he said, well, have lunch with us. Well, let you meet the director and blah, blah, And I said, well, what are you guys doing here? And they said, dude, look around. You'll figure it out. And there are apes running all over our campus. They're all over the engineering building. These apes are running up and down the library and, and the, the humanities buildings. And I went, oh, okay, now I know why you're here. And so I met the director, we had lunch, we had a nice conversation, and six months later I was playing Cornelius on the subsequent sequel, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. So, just right place, right time. So it seems to be the uh, story of your life is right place, right time. I could write the book, right place, right time. I've got a number of different titles for the book. Uh, Hollywood short story, you know, uh, yeah, it, it was just literally being four foot nine. I didn't get to go to the prom, but I went to Beijing. Okay. I didn't get to go to the prom, but I went to Africa. Uh, I went to Tokyo. I went to all over Europe. I, I went to places that I would never have dreamt possible on other people's dime. So you literally, 
if you are out there listening right now and you have some sort of challenge in your life and you are not what society considers normal, to me that's the greatest insult you can pay me is call me normal or average or ordinary. It's an insult to me. I don't want to be any of those things. So if you're out there listening and you are unique in that you have a gift or you have a talent or you have a passion, God's sakes, polish it, embrace it, make it your own, find a way to make make a buck out of it. You know, I did. I made a buck out of being four foot nine. I had no idea I would be able to, but I took physical advantage that I had that others considered to be a disadvantage. And I made a decent career out of it. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you why you switched from pre-med, but then you start talking about going to Beijing. and uh, Yeah. Which answers the question, doesn't it? Yeah. It, I mean, I realized I had an opportunity to be unique. I had an opportunity to be that guy. Because up until I came along, there were only a handful of smaller people, mostly men, um, who did any kind of stunt work. And only occasionally, because... When they weren't doing stunt work, they were doing background work, or they were playing elves, or they were playing gremlins, or trolls, or they were in characters. And so they never really honed their skill sets as stuntmen. And because I realized that was where my niche was going to be, because I was proportioned, and I looked young, and you know, at the age of 25, I was still playing a teenager as an actor. Um, I took advantage of what was given to me, you know, and, you know, lemons and lemonade, right? Oh, absolutely. So, and, and that, that applies to everybody. Anybody who, you know, the seven people who are listening to this should know that by now. I'm oh, I, I'd imagine it's going to be more than seven. <laughs> Probably ten. Well, I, I'm telling my family committed to listening, so I'm so kidding. I'm so <laughs> kidding. I, I, I am just baffled by the fact that there are probably more than 10 people who actually remember my name. That's all these <laughs> that, that, the family. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just rambling. Oh, no. Ramble away. <laughs> it's your platform. I'm just here to make sure it stays kind of on the rails. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Dude, I'm up the bushes. Come on. Give me back on the track. There. <laughs> I'm, I'm dr- oh, rails. Oh, iron wheel. Let's talk about iron wheel for half a second. We wanted to talk about <laughs> oh, we'll we'll get there. Um, oh, okay. So, one yeah. one of the things that I noticed about your career, and that you, you don't really see in a lot of careers, is you, you seem you, your work seem to come in like phases. And what I mean is, so you, it was like a chunk of Disney, then a chunk of horror, then like. Comedy, action, and then comedy, and then then it was kind of like sporadic. And I, I, I found that really interesting. There was no rhyme or reason to any of that. Um, I started off my career and I worked at Fox, God bless 20th Century Fox, um, for a few years because they did the great disaster movies. They did Towering Inferno and Earthquake and The Hindenburg and, and Beside Adventure. Well, Universal did one of those, but. Um, that's where all the stunt guys were working. That's where the kids were working because a kid was a victim on a Zeppelin or a ship or somewhere. And so that's kind of where I would go. Um, and then when Eric went off to Disney, that's when I learned, um, you know, a whole new group of individuals who kept me busy working for Disney. Um, and then I got off. Well, when I did 
Planet of the Apes, then people said, oh, well, he can act a little bit, too. Um, and so one of the things that I became fairly adept at, and I don't like bragging about much of what I did, uh, one of the things that I did that seemed to click was that I was really comfortable in prosthetic makeup. And I... So that, that's what opened up the, the door to some of the horror films, like, um, you know, doubling Freddie, young Freddie on Elm Street, or The Blob, or uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead Part 2. You know, all of these little characters were all basically prosthetic characters. They were either zombies or kids that had been, you know, distorted or, you know, a flashback to Freddy or even a flashback to Batman. You know, I did Green Child on, what was the name? No, what was the Batman that I did? Uh, where I actually played the young Batman who fell through a hole in the ground and ended up in the Batcave. Um, is the Val Kilmer rendition of one of the original Batman, Batman. Forever. Thank you. Thank you very much. I knew you could come up with it. Um, those were all fun, you know, and, and I think what we as good competent professional stuntman remembered was we weren't daredevils. We were not daredevils. We were there for one purpose, and that was to make the story better. And whatever contribution we had, whether more exciting or more dangerous, more frightful, or we were there for one purpose only, and that was to contribute to the story and to make it more um, entertaining. And uh, Daredevil's young stunt people who would come to me and look for a job, because I was a stunt coordinator at 29. I was one of the youngest stunt coordinators around at the time. Um, and that was quite a compliment. Uh, Richard Donner invited me to be a stunt coordinator on the film he did called The Toy with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. And it was a huge accomplishment for me to go from being just the stunt guy who wore the dress on Annie to now I'm the stunt coordinator on the biggest Columbia Pictures film of that year. Um, so it was quite a step up. You know, it was you know, the stepping up that ladder in Hollywood. It was a big step. Um, but all those challenges that came along were always remembered. Whether you're a stuntman or an actor or a stunt coordinator or a makeup artist or a grip or an electrician, your sole purpose on that set is to make that project Oh, absolutely. In whatever way you can. And unless I'm mistaken, there's a project that you were part of that isn't listed on your IMDb that it involves some, it involved a very furry costume. Mm-hmm. And... I did a lot of furry costumes. You know, yeah. it, it would be, you played an Ewok. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So let me tell you the Ewok story. Uh, so yeah, how did the uh, Ewok come about? Okay. Um, it started with a phone call, as did 99% of the jobs. Myself and three other smaller gentlemen were invited to go to England to help um, oversee the building of the Ewok costumes for a project at that time that was known as Revenge of the Jedi. 
and the paperwork that we got, the letterhead, all said Revenge of the Jedi. We went, hmm, interesting, because, you know, the original Star Wars had come out, so we figured, okay, it's part of that, and how cool. So the four of us went to England, and we were there as they were developing the costumes, because they knew this big chase action scene at the end of the film uh, would require these costumes to be more athletic, to be more um, pliable, uh, to be willing to do the stunts in these costumes rather than just the costumes that were the actors. Uh, we had to kind of adapt them to the physicality that they would be put through. Uh, and because the four of us would probably be the four principal Ewok stunt people in that sequence, they wanted us there up front, you know, once before. Um, and so we did. So we went there and we had a blast. Uh, tried on the costumes that we would eventually wear. Um, as I was there, as I was there, I got a phone call um, from Richard Donner's office and from Columbia Pictures saying, um, we would love to have you, you know, coordinate a toy. I said, sure, because it didn't interfere with my current employer. You know, you have to have one project and then it ends and another one starts. Well, they over overlapped. So I didn't do what ultimately became Return of the Jedi. Kevin and Felix and a few of those went off to go off and do that sequence while I became stunt coordinator for Jackie Gleason, Richard Pryor, and Richard Donner's project this way. And that launched a whole new level of profession for me. Um, and then they did a Ewok adventure television special with the costumes they had previously built. And guess what? I was available. So I went back and I got to, got to be an Ewok on the, the television special, not the, the famous feature. So that's, that's the Ewok story. But ultimately, you did help design what would be the final Ewok. So that end of the day, you, you did get to put your fingerprints on the Ewok. Yeah, one fingerprint. Yeah, it was the little finger on my right hand, and I did, it, and, it, and it, it's still there. Yeah, and in fact, I still have my contract that says that I worked on a project called Revenge of the Jedi. It's just it's cool. This, yeah, no, that, that's, I would love to see that. That's a, that's a, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, that was the Ewok story. Yeah, it was fun. It was, a, you know, I, I'm sure that the Ewok people, I mean, they weren't happy that I wasn't available for the project that they had sent me over there to prepare for, but I said, Yes, it's Hollywood. It's, it's how we work. And they knew. They understood. So it was good that I did take the other job because it lent itself to being a stunt coordinator, you know, working rather steadily from the time I was 29 until a few years ago. So, yeah, it was uh, definitely the right business move to make. And you also got to ride Pete's Dragon. Yes, I did. The original. The, the those, original Pete's Dragon, yes. Yeah, for those of you who are over the age of, you know, 50, yeah. I, you know your career has gone well when at least a half a dozen or more of your projects <laughs> have been repeated, you know, multiple times. You know, when you say, yeah, it was sustainable for Annie. Oh, you mean like the original Annie? Yeah. Yeah. The, the black and white one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I got hired to, to be the stunt double for Pete. Um, back in those days when I hadn't really quite made the transition from being a guy that, you know, could say no, um, I would also be the stand-in and photo double for Pete, and then I would do stunts for him whenever 
it became a little bit more risky. They would change the contract from an extras contract to uh, an actor's sort of stunt contract, which basically meant you made a lot more money that day. Um, but I was there from pretty much start to finish, and uh, it was all mechanical effects. It wasn't CGI. It wasn't anything that would exist today. So the only visual effects that they had, obviously, was the dragon itself. And Disney had a rather unique way of doing that kind of animation combined with real live action that nobody else did. And it was a very specific camera called the sodium camera. Um, and it, at the stage, you know, most of the time whenever you see a background that suddenly becomes something else, it's a green screen. Green screen. All right. We all know what a green screen kind of looks like. This was a sodium yellow-orange screen. Different from anything else anybody ever had. And it was the only screen in Hollywood, and it was massive. And they had a camera that had a prism. An absolutely perfectly cut glass prism. And two rolls of 35-millimeter film rolling one on the left side and one on the right side. And the prism would take whatever the lens was looking at and divide that image into two different rolls of film. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant because the one roll of film was the black and white work print. The other was the print that the, the real actors would use. And they married the two later on, mechanically, with the animated peak. And, or the, I'm sorry, with the animated dragon and the anime, and the live action Pete. And so that's how we could sit. And then there were also moments where we built large puppets that looked like the, the, the neck and head of Pete. And they were articulated with puppeteers. Um, and I would sit on the neck and we would fly around and do all those kind of fun things that today would be done, you know, on a small stage with a seat, you know, seat, you know, motion. But I was, I was happy to be a part of that transition from, it was kind of like the actors who worked on silent films who went to talkies. They went, oh, what? This is going to be really different. Or maybe it was the, the, the actors and the crew that went from black and white to color. Okay, back in the 30s, 30s and 40s. You know, suddenly we got movies that are in color. Well, they're going through that transition now over the last 10, 15, 20 years where you've got CGI versus real action, you know, or real stunts. Or I mean, here's the perfect example. I did Terminator 2 in the in the late, you know, mid nineties, and yes, there was a company called ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's company, that was like the premier motion picture effects company. ILM was also referred to as I Love Money. It was very <laughs> Um, and so, you know, the Terminator that came out of the fire when we, he crashed the truck and he, and all of a sudden we all see this, this, you know, animatronic or this, this CGI created robot. We, when we were watching the Directors Guild, uh, premiere after, you know, a year after we finished shooting the film, the whole audience went, holy crap, because we didn't even know what the final version of that film would look like. We saw stuff that, that nobody ever even dreamt of before. 
and now that's just commonplace. Now you can do it on television. Yeah. But all the stuff that we did back then, I mean, when we rode that motorcycle through the tunnel of that bridge after I had been chased on the minibike for, you know, several shots, um, when when Arnold and the kid come out of that ball of flame, which is a rather iconic shot, um, that's all real. There were several hundred gallons of gasoline that exploded behind us. Trust me, I know. I didn't have any eyebrows for a couple of days. It was hotter than hell, and we could not make any mistakes. I know people have asked me over the years, what's the what's the, the most dangerous stunt you've ever done? And it's kind of like asking a pilot, what was the most dangerous landing you ever made? Well, anyone you could walk away from was a good one, right? Yeah. You know, so um, some of the more dangerous things I ever did were not necessarily the, the action films or the horror films. It was the comedies. It was it was the the films, you know, little comical, you know, slapstick physical moment. It's, a, it, it's you know it, it, they say tragedy plus time equals comedy. So now you've uh, done two movies with one one of my previous guests and. You know, horror icon D. Wallace. Oh yeah. Yeah, and that's E.T. and Critters. Oh my gosh, I I forgot he worked on Critters too. Yeah, very cool. So, what what were uh, what was your experience like on those? Um, they called me to work on E.T. a few weeks prior to my actually working on the film, and I was busy doing something. I don't, I can't honestly tell you what the project was, but I wasn't. One of those guys, a few of the stunt guys would just drop whatever they were working on, find somebody to replace them, and then go off and run off to the next big job. You know, they didn't really stick it out and go from start to finish on a project. Um, I didn't do that for two reasons. One, I felt obligated to the project from start to finish. And two, I wasn't going to leave, you know, a good, steady paycheck for the possibility of maybe a better paycheck on the next project that may have only ended up a couple days. So again, it's a business. So we were looking at it from a business standpoint. I finally did get to work on E.T. Um, on a couple of scenes on the bike, they actually had really, really talented young uh, bicycle motocross riders do a lot of that chase scene where the kids on the bikes are going through the, the neighborhood and they're going up and down the hills. And those guys could run rings around on a bicycle, and uh, to do a lot of that. I did a couple of shots, not many, uh, and then I did a couple of shots where when the van, uh, the medical van is being driven by the older brother, and they're part of that chase, and the guys in the tube, the two uh, scientists in the tube are being tossed about, um, and, and Elliot is in the back of the van disconnecting the tube from from the, the van itself. Um, they put me back there, because obviously it wasn't motocross, it was actual stunt work. And we were flying around. I mean, there were opportunities where I could have fallen out of the back of the truck. And so there was no reason why they would have put Henry Thomas yeah. in that. Um, Henry's an amazing guy. Absolutely amazing, well, adult now. But uh, Critters, I did a little bit on, but to be honest with you, it was probably so little that I don't even have a vivid <laughs> of what it did. Okay, and you have to. I'm going to play the old card here. At 71, I don't even know what I had for breakfast yesterday. Okay, um, 
and yeah, you weren't kidding about how around ET you were probably at your busiest. I mean, just looking at what all came out the same year as ET, it was Annie, ET, Blade Runner, Beastmaster, The Toy, and Voyagers. That would probably explain why I didn't work on ET Star Trek. It's because I was doing any one or a combination of all of those. Yeah. Uh, I did a film. You know, and the other thing about IMDb that most of you may or may not know is that IMDb is a strange beast. I'd say maybe 65 to 70% of my career is actually on my IMDb page. There's probably a good 30% of my career that um, is not listed because there were no credits given. Yeah. And some people in particular, from up until about the mid-80s, weren't even given billing. Uh, because we were behind the curtain. We were a part of that mystique where people uh, wanted to tell the fans that the actors did all their own stunts and the stuntmen and the stunt coordinator hardly ever existed. That we were the magicians. We were part of that magic that was filmmaking. And so whenever I was on a set in the 70s and I was in the same wardrobe makeup as the actor that I was doubling, um, Frequently, they would suggest that we not stand close to each other because they were just afraid that somebody would take a picture of the two of us together and it would destroy that illusion. Um, it wasn't particularly um, mandated, but they didn't make they didn't realize until the mid '80s how much worth the stunt people were to the publicity of the film. Because if you take a look at a movie, even today. Any of the Tom Cruise movies, any of the big action movies, any of the Marvel movies that you see being promoted today, the vast majority of the trailers are the stunts. Uh-huh. And yet, up until the mid-80s, they were never even allowed to be discussed. So it, they realized, oh, wait, this is, this is the part that people really want to see. And so then somebody actually did for this brand new entity called HBO. It's a company nobody ever even heard of. Nobody even knew what HBO stood for. Um, somebody did a behind-the-curtain peek, and it was a documentary on how we made this movie. What did we do to make this movie? How did we get these characters to do what we did? And it was called The Making of Star Wars. And that was the first time that people got to pull the curtain back and see on HBO, this brand new entity, what actually happened during the course of that production. And then people realized, okay, well, now that we've shown it, we might as well just exploit it. So that's, again, that's just another part of the transition of the film industry. And that all happened in the early 1980s. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, that was it. That was the very first behind-the-scenes peak at filmmaking. I mean, there were others that were less well-known. There were other little, you know, PBS documentaries that were told here and there. But this was the one that everybody paid attention to. Because not only was HBO this new company that needed to get off the ground, but it was George Lucas. So people, people paid attention. 
I have uh, Star Wars to thank for a great TV series that I worked on called Quark. And for those of you who are, who are sci-fi fans, it's not horror, but uh, we did eight episodes of um, a show where we were the intergalactic sanitation department. Um, Richard Benjamin, Tim Thomerson, cast of others, um, we were all this little spacecraft that flew around space picking up like trash. Boy, they could use this now, couldn't they? Oh, yeah. And uh, this is all like 1980. Buck Henry wrote it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Screenwriter and actor. Um, and we did the pilot. Didn't go anywhere. Star Wars was released. And within a week of Star Wars being released, they all called us back and said, just kidding, we're going to do eight episodes. See where it goes. <laughs> because they wanted to make fun of, of science fiction. Well, it was too soon. It was very satirical. It was very camp. It was very over the top. And people went, no, 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 no. Science fiction is serious stuff. We've got we to gotta respect it. You know, we've got to sit there quietly and go, ooh, ah, ooh, R2, ah. 3PO, great. And then they realized, oh, crap. We should have stuck with you guys for a while because now it would be funnier than hell, you know. So, well, anyway. Look at how popular Spaceballs was. There it is. Yeah, there's the exa- that's the perfect example. Skateballs came out after people realized, oh, yeah, I guess we can make fun of this. Yeah. But that was the example. That was the perfect example. And then there was all the John Lithgow TV series, mm-hmm. too. Um, I mean, there were other shows that, that followed, but Quark was the first attempt at that. And I got to play Andy, the robot, who was hysterical. Some of the best lines I ever said on camera were inside of a giant, 80-pound tin can. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Go look. You can find it. Q-U-A-R-K. Quark. I'm sorry. If you spend two hours watching it, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was really good. It was really good. I really I'm proud of that. So. Well, let's jump ahead to sure. what would be another origin story. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Dream Child. Huh? Yeah. You did stunts for a young Freddy Krueger. I did. You know, now you're part of the you know, Freddy Krueger origin story. Yeah. One of the was, most uh, iconic characters in horror today. Yeah. And you're part yeah. of his origin story. Isn't it fun? Yeah. Um, there was a scene in that film where he's in a cathedral, a church. And there's a giant explosion, and he falls through the plate glass, you know, window. Go to the, the giant. What's the name of the glass? Um, stained glass. That's it. Stained glass. Thank you. I knew you'd come up with it. Uh, and it was a big stunt. It was. It was. It was difficult. And um, they put me into the Freddy Krueger character. Uh, they had a miniature Freddy Krueger iconic sweater. That every time I took it off, they would the wardrobe people would treat it like it was uh, a, a work of art and quite valuable, and they would literally lock it up in a specific closet on the set where nobody could wander around at lunchtime and just go, "Oh, pretty sweater, let's take it," <laughs> because it, because this was the fifth installment of Elm Street. Oh yeah. So people realized at that point what they were dealing with. Oh. This stuff is valuable. Anything that wasn't locked down or guarded with, you know, security had a habit of just kind of disturbing. Um, as, you know, 
the world goes, you see anything that might have some value later, you just kind of take it and go, oh, yeah, I got a pretty set of shares for sale. No, you don't, because they got locked up in the in the vault. Um, but it was it was fun to be a part of that. Um, the project, I, I was actually on the project for a few weeks, because there might have been a shot or two other than that one particular stunt that preceded it or followed it. Um, but we knew at that moment that we were a part of something that had already been extremely successful. It was it was it's kind of like Planet of the Apes, where on Battle, this was the fifth feature in five six years, and so we knew on that film that there wouldn't be a fourth sequel if the franchise hadn't already been immensely successful. Oh, absolutely. So it was nice to be, it would have been nice to have been a part of the very first one to say, yeah, iconically, I was a part of the very first Planet of the Apes, but it was also kind of cool to say that I was the last principal character to die on the fifth and final um, film that was shot with prosthetic makeup and not uh, motion capture. You know, there were two different, same story. Same franchise, different technique, you know. Um, so yeah, um, the, the, the Freddy bits were, were great fun, you know. And to walk away and say, yeah, I got to be, a, I got to be young Freddy, you know. It's kind of like being the young Batman, you know. I was, I was the kid Batman in the dream sequence that he had, where he's running off looking after his dog that ran off in the woods, and he falls through a hole and ends up in the Batcave. So I was the one that. You know, I, I I did an explosion and fell as Freddy, and I did an explosion and fell for Batman. So I, there was a bit of a theme going on. I, there. I, I say it, it did run kind of parallel. Uh, yeah, I did. And then with the Voyagers, the TV series, uh, it was a gentleman in his twenties and the boy who were flashing back and forth throughout time, making sure that time followed its true course, that history followed its true course, and that if there was anything off the beaten path, we would go back there and correct it and get the train back on the track. Um, that was way before a lot of the other projects have come and gone since then, but that was like 79, 80, 81. So oddly enough, I have that series on DVD sitting on my shelf, and I've yet to watch it. Voyagers? Yeah. Shut up. So That's my so mom cool. gave it to me, and she's like, here, this seems like something you would like. Mom loves it. You and know, she's like, this is something that, you know, this is right up your alley. I'm like, oh, I'll get to it. I haven't got oh, to it yet. Dude. And like, as I'm digging further into like your career and digging into this, I'm like, oh, I really need to fucking watch this. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, but I'd be honored if you did. Well, like, you no, know, you know I'm, I'm digging d- deeper into the show, and I'm like, yeah, no, this really is something I would enjoy. <laughs> well, Voyager launched a lot. Of, I mean, there were always time travel sci-fi movies, even back in the 50s. But this was a time travel TV series that was really adventurous because it was Universal Studios back in their heyday. And it was a very expensive show to do. Um, we went through three different time zones in the course of an hour show. Uh, so there was three different sets of wardrobe. And, and the... the the gentleman, John Eric Hexum, who played the, the, the male model lead, and the young boy, you know, Belouse, uh, why I remember those names is because those two guys were amazing friends. Um, 
I worked on the show on a variety of different levels. I was the stunt double for Mino because the two of them were always traveling through time, and their their mode of transportation was they fell out of the sky. They just fell out of the sky and they landed on the back of a wagon. Or they fell out of the sky and they landed in a bale of hay, hopefully. Uh, they fell out of the sky and they landed on the dirt. And you got up and went out. And then you just went on about and you tried to figure out where you were in history. And you said, okay, well, you got to go fix this guy. This guy wasn't meant to die. This guy wasn't meant to meet this girl. This painting wasn't meant to be sold to this particular person. And we would have to go and fight. And it was an action-adventure TV series that we were up against. Sunday night, we were up against the wonderful world of the mouse. And you never go against Disney. We were up against the wonderful world of Disney, and I had done a number of episodes of the wonderful world of Disney, so I was up against myself, basically. And 60 minutes. So we were never, ABC was never going to get an audience up against those two icons. Alright? So, this was the time in Universal Pictures life when they some young enterprising executive at the studio said people would love to see what we do okay this is 1979-1980 we're gonna build trams and we're gonna take people on tours through all these sound stages and the back lot and show them where these movies were shot and, and blah 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 and maybe there'll be a film crew on the set one day and they can drive by and they can see the actors doing their thing and it was just they hadn't built the Universal Studios behemoth that they have now okay but they were thinking about it and these trams loaded with people from Hutchinson, Kansas I love Hutchinson sorry guys I had to pick on you and they would drive through, and, and if there was a film crew there, they would wait, wait for the bell to ring, the actors would do the thing, the bell would ring twice, and then the tram would continue on down the little street and on to their little, you know, they'd go show where Jaws was. Well, halfway through the season, we had done like, we were completed to like 23 episodes. We realized when the, when the ratings, when the Nielsen ratings came out, when our show first aired, there were like 65 TV projects that had ratings for that particular week. It wasn't as tedious like it is now, but it was fairly, it was like the next day we kind of knew where we stood. We all rushed around. We got the Hollywood Reporter out. We got the Variety out. We started looking up because there was no internet. Okay, this is way before iPhones and internet. And we would find the list of the Nielsen ratings. And we saw Voyagers. Number 65 out of 65 shows. Oh. Holy crap. We were doomed. So I went back, being the optimist that I was, and I went to the crew, and I looked at them the next day, and I said, okay, boys, look at this one. There's nowhere to go but up from here. Nowhere to go but up. All right. Great. We're all just dig deep. Let's go make this really fun show, and blah, blah, blah. The following week, our next episode comes out. Because of just the way the shows and the, the networks and everything juggled their schedule around, there were 70 episodes of whatever show was on at that time that got a Nielsen rating. So there was instead of 65, there were 70. We were number 70. Okay, so we're duped. So we, now we know that we're just going to ride out the next 10 or 15 episodes. We're basically a lame duck TV show. Nobody at the studio cared one bit about us. 
but we so me being this really shy unassuming fellow who would just run down around the corner and see the next tram come up while we were shooting on the western street I would jump on the tram and I would say to the announcer the, the tour guide I'd say I borrow your mic for a minute oh yeah sure this is brand new Studios still kind of getting a feel for what this all this new technology is going to be, and I would introduce myself. Hi, my name is Bobby Porter. I'm the stunt double for the star of the film called TV show called Voyagers. Yes, I know none of you have heard about it, but my wife and children would love, 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 love you to go home next week and just turn it on for one week just to see if you like it. Just give us a shot, and I would do a pitch. And by the time I got the tram full of people to where our set was filming, they were cheering for us. They were on board. They were going to be a part of our team. And I would have Mino and I would have John Eric come over to the tram and they would sit there. And, you know, they couldn't take too long because they had a schedule, but they would take pictures for these people. And these people would sign autographs. I mean, John Eric and the kid would sign autographs for these people. And this is exactly what they hoped these people would do. Wonderful. The next week, we got a pop up in the ratings by like just a couple of smidgen points. Okay, we just need more publicity. We just need people to believe in us. Well, we got a, our producers got a memo from the new department at the studio called the tour department, and they said. You have someone on your crew who is disrupting our schedule. Could you please tell him to refrain from interrupting our tram schedule? I was basically told to shut the up, right? <laughs> and to stay off their damn tram. And I got a message from somebody that I trusted who was in the studio. And he said, you have to understand that the Universal Pictures studio that we had so much faith in and love for and respect for was actually making more money from the tours than they were from the films they were making. And so we were now second fiddle. We were now the junior varsity. Holy crap. Now we're just puppets in the show. And so... Voyagers was a great show. It, it obviously, we, we were doing an hour show in six, maybe seven days. It was a really hectic schedule. You know, um, most of the shows that you see on streaming, you know, broadcast now take a month to shoot for the same length of time. All right. Bigger budget, more time, fewer episodes. You know, a season now today is like eight episodes. We were shooting 26 in the same length of time. Whole oh. different industry. Whole different industry. Great projects. There's some still great, great film and television out there. I have no lack of faith in the quality of the human spirit, but how they go about doing it is entirely different than it was when I was around. So, so this has all been fascinating, and we've been going for a while now. And like I said in the intro, we're, we're going to have to split this into two parts. So before we wrap part one. Um, I do want to bring up a, a it's non-traditional horror, but a, as a kid, 
it, it was very much horror in the sense that it was a displaced family in the realm that, that ended up in the realm of like lizard people. And that's you were in not only as stunts, but also as an actor in the remake, the TV series remake of Land of the Lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you how I managed to get on the cast, and then I'll tell you how I contributed to the two years that we were on the show. Um, I was in the office with um, one of the legends of Saturday morning television, Marty Croft. Sid and Marty Croft were brothers who produced Lidsville and H.R. Puff and stuff and Sigma the Sea Monster and all of these amazing 1970s and the original Land of the Lost uh, in the 70s done on a very tight budget but with a lot of bravado and and uh, some great costumes. And so Marty was interviewing me and he got a good friend of his that he trusted on the phone while I was sitting in the office and he talked to the legendary Billy Party and he said, Billy, hey, how you doing? I got a kid in here who wants to work on the Land of the Lost thing. And he says, um, I think he might work out. What do you think? And Billy just, I could hear him over the phone. I mean, yeah, I wasn't on the other line, but I could just hear Billy go, what the are you waiting for? Sign him now. He's busy. You better sign him now or you'll never get him. And I went, holy crap. Billy, thank you so much for the, for the perk. And that was it. I was on the show. Um, so I got to play the character Stink, who was the modern version, or the, the renovated version of Chuck. I say it the, for people of you know my age and around that window, that was yeah, our Chaka. <laughs> yeah, well, Stink was um, another generation of the Pakuni, and the Pakuni were um, uh, a type of character, uh, a, a people um, who were essentially a Stink extinct um when stink came along the, the way we wrote the show he was the last of his kind and he had become befriended by um the family that had been displaced from modern day uh, uh timothy help me out what was tim's last name um the dad oh one second okay pick it up um Great, great young actor, and then went on to an adult. Uh, Bottoms. Oh, my God, Tim, I'm so sorry. Tim, if you're listening, I apologize profusely. Um, Tim Bottoms, and then a couple of very talented young actors, and um, we also had a little baby dinosaur um, that was also in a costume. The Kyoto Brothers. I would just like to point out, it's funny, they played the Porter family? Yes, the Porter family. (laughs) Who knew? Yeah, 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 I, yeah, the, 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 the uh, irony is pretty thick. Um, so, um, the Porter family gets caught back in time, they befriend this tiny little dinosaur, basically becomes the family pet, and then this, uh, stink, chocolate character comes along, and he becomes, like, the kid next door that is really just rebellious and troublesome and, and fun, but he was the one that was always getting the older boy in trouble, you know, and we would just go off and be teenagers kind of thing. Um, then he learned how to speak. The, the Porter family kind of taught him how to speak. And so there was some communication back and forth between them. Um, but our goal in life was, A, to try to get this family back to the modern day, try to find the portal where they could actually get back to where they belonged, 
and in the process, not get eaten by dinosaurs and or the sleaze stacks. And uh, so it was. It was really. It was a lot of fun, and the care and the storylines were good. Um, it was Saturday morning, so nobody had any huge expectations, but we worked really hard at it. And the makeup effects were great. The makeup that I wore, I was glued into my head at six o'clock in the morning, and I would take it off sometimes seven or eight o'clock at night, and it never came off. I mean, once the eyes were glued to my face, I wore that costume nonstop for however long the day went. So it, physically, it was very demanding. We were shooting in Southern California in Pasadena, which was brutally hot during the summer, and uh, there were times where I would just literally have to go into a, an air-conditioned trailer for a few minutes and catch my breath and get something to drink. Um, but not only was it physically demanding, but it was also, you know, we, we, we really wanted to do this right. We felt that we owed that genre some respect by you know, showing up prepared. Um, one of my really proud moments was that when they decided to do a second season, um, the two writers, the two key writers, uh, Chuck Menville and Len Jansen, who had done a lot of great Saturday morning television, uh, they were notoriously famous for great kids' projects. Um, and they were kind of the kings of Saturday morning. Um, they came to me, and I, I had told them toward the end of the first season that I had an idea for a story. And so they came to me and said, well, what's your idea? We're, we're pitching around different storylines for the second season. And to kind of cut it short, um, I wrote an episode about um, my grandfather, another Pakuni, wandering into camp that nobody knew existed. And he came to teach me how to play a flute, this little, little flute-type instrument made out of reed. And we thought, well, what's the point of this man having traveled his entire life trying to find his grandson so we teach him how to play a flute? Well, the flute actually calmed the dinosaurs as they were attacking us just long enough for us to escape. So he was teaching us a survival mechanism. And then he wandered off, and it was a tragic little story because, oh, the people died. Yeah. This is like 1980. I mean, we were really kind of cutting here, close. And the two executive producer writers went to ABC and said, because they wanted to cut that part of the scene, and they said, we're going to shoot this episode the way it was meant to be shot. That Grandpa, we don't say he dies, we just say he wanders off to go be with, you know, his people or... Um, but we actually got to do the story the way it was originally intended without the editors at ABC coming in and just chopping it up to pieces. And the, the reality of the story was the third day of the five days we were filming this episode, the man who gave me the opportunity to write the episode, which was the opening episode of the second season, it's called Opa, passed away. Mm. So the man who literally gave me the opportunity to start my writing career three days into the filming of this particular story about my grandfather dying. He himself dies. It was, it was very difficult for all of us. And I had to go up when I found out that he had passed, it was in the middle of the day. And I, I my character was a very funny character. He had to do all kinds of really crazy, funny stuff. And the, the line producer came up to me and told me that, that Chuck had just passed. And, I had to get up out of my chair. 
five minutes later, I'm going to do a funny scene. We had to be hysterically funny five minutes after finding out that the man who had helped us create this show had passed. Not always easy. Continuing, let's say, continuing to stay in character or do your job while delivering that kind of, after being handed that kind of news yeah. is never easy. No. I mean, I, the, the parallel I can think of would be an athlete about to perform a, a very difficult game or performance or an Olympic athlete who's about to, you know, enter, a, a, you know, a competition knowing full well that the coach that he had for the last several years of his life had passed. Well, I can, in he, a I, very similar circumstance, I, I also do wrestling commentary for a local wrestling promotion here in town. Interesting. And this last December, while we were calling a match, one of the uh, uh, wrestlers' local name here in town had passed away. Oh, and we well, got it, the news during the event. Yeah, yeah, there it is. And it's like still, you know, still got to call the match. You know, yep. still, you still got a job to do. Yep. You know, it I, sucks, but you got to keep trucking. Yeah. Speaking of wrestling, it's a nice, you no know, segue. Um, one of my mentors in, in my profession, one of the guys who taught me so much, and was actually at my side just after I had nearly been killed by a car. Um, was a legendary wrestler by the name of Gene LaBelle. And I don't know if the, the name rings any bells to you, but if you really want to see a tremendous career, just Google Gene, G-E-N-E, LaBelle, L-E-B-E-L-L. Judo Gene LaBelle was internationally famous. His mother used to own the Olympic Auditorium here in Los Angeles, and Gene had an illustrious career both as a wrestler uh, as a judo competitor and as a great, great stuntman. And so there's the legendary man who, uh, when he passed, every stuntman in Hollywood who was over the age of 40 realized we'd lost one of the icons. So there's a name for you to look up. Holy Toledo. Yeah. Gene LaBelle. You've seen him on so many, so many movies where he's the um, referee in the ring. But I hired Gene. I, I did 139 episodes of a show called um, Malcolm in the Middle toward the end of my career. And I hired the legendary Gene LaBelle to beat the crap out of Brian Cranston <laughs> in, a, in a clown costume. Yeah, it's, it's one of the funnier scenes, Malcolm. Yeah. And, and yeah, Uncle Gene shows up with a big red wig and a big red nose. And this is a legendary, iconic uh world-renowned judo educator and uh, competitor. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, Gene, Gene was uh, quite a good friend. That's my wrestling commentary. Well, on that, I'd say we put a pin in this. Let's do it. Listeners, tune back in next month for part two with Bobby Porter. We'll dive deeper into Planet of the Apes. We'll hit Pet Cemetery 2, The Blob, uh, Terminator 2. Oh, my God. Pumpkinhead. I mean, the, the, the list is just mind-blowing. So, 
come back next month and look for me on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube at Moose Media Inc. And you can find other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com. Bobby, this has been phenomenal and very informational. And, oh my God, I cannot wait to do this again. Well, I, I strongly suggest that anybody who comes back, um, get the caffeine. And a comfy chair. Yeah, yeah, comfy chair and some caffeine, and we'll have a lot of fun. And thank you very much for coming by, and see you all next month. And until next time, Horrorhounds, Ash on. This has been Moose's Monster Badge. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>